0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We grow, 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 helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome again to uh, 10 Hard Questions. And uh, we had a good, good, uh, good time last week. I I really appreciate it, uh, David Robinson. And I appreciated his manner and his very thoughtful answers to some very difficult questions. Um, tonight uh, we're going to be carrying on in our series we're on week eight so we have one more official question and that's on hell and that's next week how could a loving God send people to hell which is a huge question and then we have an ask anything night on week 10 and I've already received a lot of ridiculously hard questions so (laughs) thank you I guess um yeah, they are very I'm not kidding, they are super hard questions. Um tonight's question is again one of those one of those questions where midweek I'm like what was I thinking? Um so tonight's question is a very very hard question. How could a loving God allow so much suffering? And so we're going to dive right into this and hopefully this will be a good conversation tonight. I'm going to begin by reading um, just a passage from the book of Romans and then we'll pray and we'll get going. We know this in in Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Lord, we need your wisdom tonight. You're a God who speaks. You're the God who comes alongside. You're a God who understands suffering. And so we have big questions tonight and we pray that you would speak to us and that this would not simply be an abstract academic exercise, but um, you would uh, bring this to our heart, to the matters of the heart. So we commit tonight to you and we pray that you would guide our conversation in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So how could a loving God allow so much suffering? Well, I mean, part of the question is I mean, this is a heart's cry on so many people's hearts, especially when they look at the world that we live in. Because you look around this world and there is a lot of suffering. And there's different kinds of suffering. There's suffering that's caused by sin, uh, there's suffering that is caused by seemingly by chance, suffering caused by the elements, by the climate. We read about suffering in the Holocaust in World War II. We read about the 1994 Rwandan genocide. We read about the millions who were enslaved in the, just in the 18th century alone. We see slavery today. We read about the 2004 tsunami in Indonesia which left 230,000 people dead. And we hear about the suffering of our friends who have cancer, who are struggling, who are in the hospital. Children who experience abuse, neighbors killed by a stray bullet. So how do we make sense of this in light of God? This is a big question. Now, there's two sides to this question. There's two, uh, not two sides, but there's There's two things to keep in mind when we talk about suffering. One is, there are some real theological questions we need to wrestle with. You know, how can a good God allow suffering? That's a a deep theological question we need to wrestle with. But there's another side, and that's just the pastoral side. And sometimes when we're talking to people who are asking these questions about suffering, we need discernment. Because sometimes we'll be answering a question that really they're not asking, because what they're asking is, you know, how to get through this. And so we need to discern: is this a pastoral need or, or is it a, a desire for understanding? And some of you here tonight and online, um, you're coming at this question either from a maybe a real personal issue that you're struggling with, and or some of you are really trying to understand. And probably many of you, a bit of both. In some ways, it's easier to simply get rid of this question, get rid of the idea of God. Let alone, you know, a loving God. And simply admit that honestly, this is what life is like if God did not exist. This is what a guy, uh, Richard Dawkins, an atheist, suggests. He argues that our universe, quote, has precisely the properties we should expect. If if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So, I mean, that's what Dawkins says. He says, you know, you look around the world, and this is what you would expect if god does not exist and so god doesn't exist so tonight we're going to explore i think the question that we've all wrestled with at some time or another if god exists and if he's so loving then why the suffering that we see in our lives and in this world and for a lot of people this question of suffering is the trump card sorry i know it's tuesday super tuesday or whatever the uh, elections hate to use the t word but in the old sense the trump card um is a trump card that takes down Christianity. So how do we respond to this? Well, I'm gonna follow um, people who are a lot wiser than myself and I'm gonna be following as we have been all throughout this course, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's book on Confronting uh, Christianity. She has a very interesting chapter on this. And one of the best books just to understand to walk through and to help people walk through issues of pain and suffering yeah. this is Blue yeah. book, Walking with God um, Through Pain and Suffering. It's a very, very good book. And so I'm drawing a lot from these guys in this, uh, in this class tonight. So, um, and so the way I'm going to frame it, I'm going to frame it basically in three ways. I'm going to say, okay, let's look at suffering in a world without God. And then let's look at... Um, suffering in, from maybe an Eastern or more Buddhist perspective. And then let's, let's look at a Christian perspective, okay? So we begin with suffering without God. And a lot of people say, hey, this is a braver, better way to do it. Uh, as one, this one writer put it, um, they wrote, the only excuse for God is that he doesn't exist. That's the only excuse God has is that he doesn't exist. Because you know what? Stuff happens in this world. It makes no sense. We look around and it's just random. And do you know what? That's just the way it is. There's no point in trying to read purpose or God into this world. Maybe in the olden days, that's what people did. In the olden days, they tried to you know, connect some disaster or some real bad suffering to God's providence or God's direction. But that's the olden days. We've grown up since then. And so people say, friends, it's time to face a hard reality. The difficult truth that there is no transcendent purpose. There's no transcendent meaning to life. What you see is what you get. Stephen Hawking, we take his cue and say the brain is simply a computer. And quote, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And I would say most atheists would kind of land somewhere along those lines. We have one life to live, and the most we can do is make the best of things. Now, I've shared this story before, but it always comes to mind. Um, I was thinking about a, uh, a time when my kids were little, and they were in elementary school, and I was one of those dads that had to go to elementary school songs that the kids would put on these performances that would go on forever and you couldn't get out of there right okay you know i'm talking about yes um but this was a christmas concert but it was awkward because in a secular world you can't really sing christmas songs because that implies a certain idea of a transcendent truth or even god And so what you did is you had this kind of a song that was secular, but sung in a Christmassy kind of way. And the song that was sung was this song, and I'll never forget it, all the kids were standing up, and I think it was my youngest daughter was standing up there and just singing her heart out. And the song was called Child of the Universe. And the song went something along these lines. All we are are some speckless dusts, specks of dusts in a nameless, faceless universe. (laughs) I'm serious. That's how this song went. All of us are floating around in this nameless, faceless universe. But that's okay. Why? Because every one of us is a child of the universe. And they're swaying back and forth. And I'm like... (laughs) And Karen's like, don't, 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 don't stand up. Don't do that. Cause I'm, I'm like, you know, this is worse than a, you know, Pink Floyd song. I mean, this is like, this is, what is this? And it was, it was complete nihilism. It was nothingness. But they're singing as if this was like, this made it okay, <laughs> specks of dust in a faceless universe. But a lot of people say that. They say, we don't have a need for a God hypothesis. Instead, we should all simply try to make this world a better place before we leave. And you know what? You make this world a better place even after you die. Because you can buy one of those sacks to put your dead body in and attach it to a sapling. And you, as you decompose, a new tree can be formed, which is a real thing. Have you seen that? Yes, yes, it's 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 kind of a trend now. It's like, hey, if I'm gonna die I may as well you know use my rotting body to keep a tree which way why not? Now as you can imagine, this approach to life and suffering, it may sound quite courageous, but I think it's riddled with serious problems. For example, If there is no good and evil, then it begs the question, why try to make this a better place? What does it mean to be better? Better for whom? And just as an aside, when we do experience suffering or or things that go wrong, why do we complain? And there, there's there's more issues that come up. Let's say, let's say we live in a world where we can show sympathy for one another. And, and I've heard this argument is that we should be kind to one another, even in a, in a, from an atheist perspective, we should be kind to one another because when a society is kind to one another, it's actually an evolutionary thing that has developed over over millions of years, by being kind to one another, it benefits the community as a whole and therefore enhances their ability to propagate their genes to the next generation. So it's an evolutionary reason. That's why people can be kind to one another in a community. But the question still remains, once you're aware that this is simply an evolutionary thing, why do you have to carry on with the charade? Or why do you have to carry on with this? If there is no objective meaning to this life, if our sense of self is a delusion, then what difference does it make what I do? And if you want to be consistent, and the only guy who's really being consistent on this, I think, and we talked about him before, is Friedrich Nietzsche. And you want to drill down. All you're left with is essentially nihilism, which means nothingness. It's a philosophy of nothingness. There's nothing, there's no objective meaning, no objective good, and nothing to help you understand suffering other than suffering happens. Now, when I'm describing this, I'm not describing this as an outsider and saying this is what these atheists believe. I've lived in this reality i've I've stared into that pit of nothingness, and I've lived a life where goodness was, hey, it was beneficial to me, something was bad, it's not beneficial to me. I've lived in that reality. And you know what? if you're doing well and you're healthy, it's okay. But the moment something goes wrong, it gets a little problematic. And what you know what's really hard is because Nobody can live there. Nobody can live in, in, in that place of nihilism that there is, there's, 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 there's no transcendent meaning to this life. Even though people may say that, nobody lives consistently to that because to be human is to be a meaning maker. And I think our hearts rage against the idea of meaninglessness because our hearts were created for meaning. There's one fella. I really like this guy. He's a Cambridge paleobiologist. His name is Simon Conway Morris. And he asks us, he says, quote, suppose that the moral structure, the ethical voice, the endless yearning for a world made good are not the fantasies of a decimated ape, but rather the signposts of deep realities in which our destiny may be involved. There's something deeper going on. And atheism destroys this hope. Now, here's the thing. Atheism offers you a very tidy picture of reality. This is what, what you see, is what you get. This is all there is. Problem is, is reality, it may be very tidy, but it's this big. And what is removed is mystery and wonder. It's a harsh and futile reality. We live, we die, and that's it. And when how can we talk about meaning in the universe, meaning to our lives, when there's no meaning to anything? and uh, what always drives me is is when when you see someone who's who's just a full-on atheist who rages at suffering who gets angry at suffering i'm like why like and i'm serious why help me understand why you'd be so angry at suffering See, without God, we're left with a universe with no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but empty, hollow indifference. And so that's why I don't buy it. When people say this is a more mature way of looking at the world, I'm like, no, it's not. It's, it's, It's a life of fear, of anarchy, of hedonism, of despair and death. And all it does is offer us a brick wall and a dead end. So I don't think. And so. Whenever people ask the question about suffering and, good, and the goodness of God, the first thing I do is, is turn the question. Say, okay, help me understand a world without God. And, and, and a person, when they try to describe meaning, the meaningfulness of a world without God, I'll tell you, they borrow all the Christian language. They're borrowing from a, from a worldview. And I'll say, no, no, you can't, you can't, bore, you can't sneak in concepts of goodness and human rights. These are all Christian terms. On your own terms, lay this out for me. There's not much there. So let's look. I mean, the other option, or one other option, would be to turn eastward, and we did this before. We looked at Buddhism a few weeks ago, but. Buddhism actually offers something by way of understanding and approaching suffering in the world. What does, what does it offer? Well, in order to understand what it offers, we need to kind of go back to the beginning, to go back to the life of Buddha. And And, and do you know the story of Buddha? Well, the story, we're told, is that there was that Buddha was once a young prince. But there was a prophecy surrounding this young prince that one day he was going to turn his back on his kingdom and walk away from all that went with being a prince. Now, the father doesn't want his son to walk away from being a prince. And so what does he do? He tries to make his life super comfortable. He finds the most beautiful woman in the kingdom she becomes his wife in addition to that he provides a harem for 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 young buddha provides him all sorts of comforts but in the end the son grows bored and he persuades his father to let him go on a chariot and leave the palace and the father's still a little nervous he's like okay you can but he orders his servants to basically clear the streets of anyone who is old anyone who is sick, anyone who is dying because he did not want his son to see what the real world looked like. And so that's what they did. And yet, one day, one old man didn't get the memo. One old man got through and the son was faced with the realization, huh, people grow old. Another day he goes out, he sees someone who's sick. Whoa, not only do people get old, they get sick. The next time he goes out, he sees a dead body. Not only do people get old, not only do they get sick, but they die. And as a result, and true to the prophecy, the young prince left his palace, went to live in a forest began his journey towards enlightenment. And when he emerged out of his time of enlightenment, he realized what is the biggest problem with this world? The biggest problem with this world is attachment. When we are too attached to things, we experience suffering. So suffering is connected to attachment. And the only way to to escape suffering is to break the ties that tether us to this world. And there's one guy, Jonathan Haidt, he's a psychologist. Uh, He makes an interesting comment. He says, what would happen if if the young prince had spoken to those who were suffering? Maybe he would have been able to talk to them and, 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 and hear from them that in their life of suffering, they actually found meaning in life. Who knows? But there's a guy named Oz Guinness. How many of you know who Oz Guinness is? You all know him by his beer, but uh, no, <laughs> he actually is related to that family. Um, Oz Guinness. He's a Christian philosopher. I really like Oz Guinness. He, in one of his recent books, he tells the story of Issa, who's uh, an 18th century haiku poet from Japan. And this 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 haiku poet Issa. Um, had a very difficult life. Uh, he lived his life, and his wife and five kids all died. And after each one of his kids died, he went to the Zen master. And he asked the Zen master, help me make sense. My son, my kids have just died. And the and the answer that he got from the Zen master was the same words of consolation. And he says, he said, remember, remember, the world is due.'" like dew on the grass. When the sun comes up, the dew disappears. Same with suffering. Same with loss. It's all an illusion. It's all maya. And and the problem with life is that we become too attached to things. So you want to move forward in life and you want to kind of deal with the issue of suffering? The answer is Become more detached. Transcend the worldly cares that go with suffering and mourning because that simply prolongs the grief that you're feeling. So, Esau, when he hears this, he hears this. One day he goes back home after one of his kids dies and he goes back home and he writes one of his most famous poems. It's just very poignant. And in English, it is translated The world is due. The world is due, and yet, and yet. See, those first two lines is kind of a Buddhist philosophy. It's the world is is, is transient, it's just due. And so don't get too attached, and then you don't have to experience suffering. The last two lines are the lines of a father who's lost their child. And he's like, and yet, and yet. I remember when uh, and I think I've shared this before, when the, the, the Dalai Lama was interviewed after 9-11. And they asked him, What do you what did you think about you know you know thousands of people dying in this in this horrible tragedy? And um the Dalai Lama had nothing to say. And what, what could he say? I mean, if suffering is just an illusion, well then the the, the way The response is just don't feel so attached to things. Recognize this suffering. It's just Maya. It's just an illusion. So I don't think the Eastern way is actually helpful. So what I would like to do is let's look at what Christianity has to offer. Because I think, it's big shocker, I think it actually has something to offer us here. Now, the problem is laid out logically as as follows. A good God would not allow suffering and evil. An all-powerful God could eliminate evil or would eliminate evil. But there is evil and suffering in this world. And so the problem is, is God is not good or he's not all-powerful. That's usually the way it's framed. And this, again, used to be the slam dunk against Christianity, but it leaves out a very important consideration, and, and you probably see it. And it's just and it's this, is that's could it be that God has a good moral reason for allowing evil in this world? And if that's the case, his decision to allow it doesn't undermine his power, and it doesn't mean he's not good. It just means we don't understand the reason for why things are happening. And as smart as humans are, we can't fully understand an infinite God. And and we we get uh, two examples. One is Job, right? The story of Job, who lived a righteous life. Terrible things happened. Job asks all the hard questions. And in the end, he's confronted by God. And God basically just says to, to Job, what? He just says, where where were you when I formed the world? Um, can you tell the lightning where to strike? Can you make seas come and go? And he says, Job, you, you just you can't understand. Now the other example is 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 just as well known. It, it, it involves another famous figure, uh, um, Severus Snape. anybody i can can just see who's read harry potter and who doesn't I have no idea severus snape is (laughs) okay he's from harry potter anyhow if you know the story if you don't just ignore this illustration (laughs) you'll know how many of you how many of you have read i've seen the movies or okay okay quite a few okay um you'll know that um Severus Snape had a morally defensible reason for killing Albus Dumbledore. Sorry, spoiler. (laughs) It seemed like an act of evil, but it's the reason for, the moral reason Harry Potter could only see when he saw the entire story being unfolded. And the reality is we can't see the whole picture. There may come a point where we'll be able to know, but there may not be. And that's what it was interesting to hear David last week, David Robinson talk about that. We may know or we may not know. The reality is, is, we're not given a reason for the existence of evil. We get little hints along the way in the Bible, but it's not a clear reason. So, how do we proceed? Well, this is what I'd like us to do. Um i like us to lean in by by, by looking at a passage. I, I, there's different ways we could have done this tonight. But what I'm going to suggest is that we, we read a particular passage in the Bible. And I think this passage is going to help us. I really do. Um, it's a passage that is my go-to passage whenever I lead a funeral. And it's John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, um, in honor of God's word, let's stand, no, I wouldn't want to do it, I almost got, just out of habit, no, no, you don't have to stand, I'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding, it's just a, a habit of mine, yeah? okay, so the story is, John chapter 11, uh, in verse 1, it says, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, okay, and then verse 5, we read these words. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Huh. Verse 17. When Jesus came and he finally goes to the place where Lazarus was, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. He died. And Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into this world. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, ever the practical one, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there'll be an odor. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this is a powerful story. And it's a a powerful story. Because here you have people that that Jesus knows. They're friends. It says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, loved Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, and so the logical thing to do is to call Jesus for help. But it's strange because it says Jesus loved Lazarus, but then it says he waited two days. Now, this is strange because we know. We know that Jesus, I mean, he's... He's healed long distance before. He can heal long distance. But here, his friend, whom he loves, is sick and he decides to wait. First takeaway he says sometimes in our grief, Jesus seems far away. Sometimes when we call for Jesus to help in a particular way, he doesn't come. Now, it helps in the Bible. There's lots of examples of people crying out to God but have unanswered prayers. I mean, Jesus, on the night he was arrested, he prayed, Father, if, if, if you're willing, take this cup from me. The Apostle Paul was tormented with a thorn in his side, and he prayed that God would remove it, but, but God didn't. And we know in history that there's times where, well, in our own lives when we pray, and, and it seems that like God is far away. I'm always reminded of C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, in the early 20th century tells, he is interesting. He wrote a book, The Problem of Pain, which he dealt with the philosophy of suffering and trying to make sense of it. And it's very academic and it's, it's, it's thoughtful, but then he writes this book, A Grief Observed, and he wrote it right after his wife died of cancer. His wife, Joy Davidman dies, and, and right away Lewis writes this, it's fresh. And this is what Lewis writes, He says, in all this, he says, meanwhile, where's God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing him. So happy that you're tempted to feel claims upon yourself as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be, so it feels, welcome with open arms. But when you go to God, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? A door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Wow. Then he writes these words. He goes, not that I I am, I think, in much danger of not believing in God anymore. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread not is, so there's no God after all. No. But so this is what God is really like. So this is Lewis. And if you ever get a chance, read his grief observed. It's powerful because he observes his grief as he walks through it. In the case of Lazarus, why doesn't Jesus show up? Well, we know that when he does show up, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Martha goes out. Mary stays in. Martha goes out. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Now, Jesus tells her that her brother's going to rise again. And right away, Martha's like, yeah, I know that. I know that in the end of time, in the last days, there will be resurrection and all everybody will be resurrected. But that's not what she's wanting. She's like, her question is, why won't you help me now? And I think a lot of Christians are like that. A lot of Christians are like, yeah, we know in the end, yeah, there'll be there'll be resurrection, but my kid's sick now. This is what's going on now. And we're not satisfied by some faraway hope. But then we read Jesus's words. He says, and these are powerful words. He says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now, who's he talking about? Lazarus? No, I think he's talking to Martha. What's he saying? He's saying this. Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You're in grief And you think your greatest need at this moment is to get your brother back. But I'm here to tell you that your greatest need is me. So Jesus, he's not offering better, you know, guidelines for a better you. He's offering life. He's offering himself. Now, let's let's keep leaning in here because I think there's something that we need to get. One of the things that comes in this passage and is powerful is that, well, one, Martha responds. She goes, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the son of God who's coming into this world. But then Mary comes out. And I love Mary. She says the same thing to Martha. You know, Lord, if you had been here, then my brother would not have died. And then it's interesting. We read Jesus is deeply moved. And he asks, where's the body laid? And we read that he wept. But again, Jesus weeping and saying these things is strange because if he had shown up a few days earlier, none of this would have happened. And and you see, even the bystanders are like, "Oh, I'll see how he loved them." And other ones are like, "Okay, oh, I mean, the guy can make blind see. Could he not have saved this brother?" But what we have here is a powerful picture because. What you have is Jesus is not like Buddha sitting on some cloud with his eyes half closed, oblivious. What we find here is a picture of God who feels our suffering. Now, you can't skip over that. And sometimes as Christians, we hear that too often. You know, God, he understands. He does understand our suffering. He He is a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief, and and Jesus says these words. He, I mean, he, he he weeps, and um. And and he, what does he say? He weeps. And then, uh, right after he weeps, they ask, "Where where have you laid him?" And he tells her to take away the stone. It's interesting because what's what's being revealed in this passage is, is, is something about who Jesus is. Not only does he understand our suffering, but when you look at the who Jesus is, you also realize not only does he understand our suffering and can relate and enter into our suffering, but he also does something with it. And we know this from Isaiah 53, where we read that he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And it's a picture that Jesus doesn't just understand and empathize with our suffering, which is a lot. But he takes our grief, takes our suffering, takes our sickness, and he carries it all. He bears the weight of our sin on his back and dies the death that we should have died. And Jesus understands sorrow. He understands not just the death of his friend, but he also understands what it's going to be like to have people abandon him. He's going to understand um, being tortured, uh, nailed to a cross. And even on the cross, Jesus understands what it means to be abandoned. He cries out, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He weeps at Lazarus' grave. And then he says, all right, roll away the stone. Lazarus comes out. And the man who is dead comes out alive. Now, what does this leave us with? Well, I think it leaves us still with a lot of questions one of the questions I have and maybe you have this too if Jesus had planned to heal Lazarus why didn't he do that in the first place why this whole thing of Lazarus dying and being buried and being in the tomb for like why didn't he just heal him and I always love I mean you've probably seen that the story of Lazarus I think it's John Chris I forget who does it Lazarus in heaven you know, Lazarus, he's he's gone on to eternal life. And he's, you know, this is great. I'm, I'm in the presence of God, and this is this is awesome. And and then somebody knocks on the door and said, We need to speak to Lazarus. <laughs> <laughs> we need you back down there. <laughs> like you, you think about Lazarus, like he's just boy, I have to go back and then die again. Oh, okay. so why does jesus let his friend lazarus die why does he let mary and martha mourn for four days why does he allow them to doubt his goodness have you guys ever wondered that i I think it's a strange strange story why not tell mary and martha his plan in the first place well the one thing that stands out is this between the death of Lazarus and between his death and him coming out of the tomb, something happens to Martha. And what happens to Martha is Martha learns that Jesus is her life. She didn't know that. But in between Lazarus's death and Lazarus coming, coming to life, life again, Martha recognizes that Jesus is her life. And so there's a picture that's being shown in this passage, and and that is just how big Jesus is, that Jesus is our life, that he's not a means to an end, that Jesus does not exist to be a means to what we think life ought to look like. Right, And this is important. Jesus is not a tool. He's not a tool to a better you. He's not a tool to how you think life should look. He is our life. And that's what he's saying in this. In the midst of this this death and resurrection of Lazarus, Martha is realizing that this is who Jesus is. He is all that you need. He's everything you need. He is the life. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And yes, there is suffering. But the reason why, but, but suffering drives us to, into a relationship with the one that matters. And if the goal of life, the goal of life is not to have a smooth life. The goal of life is to know and live in Jesus. That's the goal of life. That's what life is all about, is to know and be known by Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so one of the things that Martha learns in all this is that even in her sorrows, even in her grief, that Jesus is a man of sorrows who is with her. and, and, And will always be with her. And so you get the picture. Uh, I was reminded of Daniel in the lion's den or the, uh, the, the, the friends in the lion's den. Not lost, the lion's den. Sorry. I'm thinking Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. <laughs> Come on, right to the lion's den. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the furnace, they're in the furnace, but they do not burn because there's a force that God is present even in the furnace. And and this is huge because sometimes as Christians, even as Christians, we think there's a connection between our suffering and our sin, right? But there's suffering because, and sometimes there is, right? you eat too much sugar? (laughs) You have too many cookies tonight. Um, There's going to be consequences. And we can think of times where when you do something that you shouldn't have done, there is suffering but we need to recognize the amount of suffering a person endures is not directly proportionate to their sins. We have the book of Proverbs, which says, you know, when you walk in the ways of God, you will make your path straight, but you also have the book of Job. So the Bible holds both those things together. And you even have the story of Jesus where Jesus he's walking along. There's somebody, somebody who is blind from birth. And, um, or saw a man suffering and, 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 um, the disciples say, Hey, why is this guy suffering? Did did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says, Neither. That's not why he's he's suffering. And then Jesus heals him. But there's a difference between Christianity and and Buddhism and Hinduism and certainly atheism. Because Buddhism would say it's all about your over-attachment, you're over-attached to things and you need to uh, detach yourself, recognize that all this is Maya, this is just an illusion and if you're detached then you're okay. In Hinduism, you have ideas of reincarnation and karma. What is karma? How does karma work? Yeah, if you're good in this life, it'll spill over into your next life. And if you're suffering in this life, what what's what's the issue? Yeah, you're you're, you're yeah, you're 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 paying. Yeah, what goes around and comes around. Yeah, you're paying the consequences for things that you have done maybe in another life. And so the goal in, within the karma and reincarnation is that you keep trying to do a better job better job better job until you finally get to the point where where um where it all works out right <laughs> but it's interesting um i remember hearing uh, bono being interviewed and Bono was saying, you know what? So much in this world looks like karma. You get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. And then he just says, and then there's this thing called grace, and it cuts right across karma, and it makes no sense. I'll never forget him saying that. I thought, well, that was, that was, it, was, it was quite good. Because Christianity, in, in many ways, teaches opposite of karma. Uh, those who live in comfort now but never turn to Jesus – Well, there's consequences for that, and they're not good, and we'll explore those next week. Um, Where those who suffer now, by clinging to Jesus, even in their suffering, are close to God, and their mourning can be transformed into joy. And we also need to reject the idea that because God loves us, we won't suffer. Now, only in our modern age would we think that. In our comforts of the West would we think that. That because God loves us, we'll never suffer. Nowhere in the Bible does it say this. In the Bible, you get all sorts of examples of people suffering. In fact, if anybody ever tells you, hey, become a Christian, and man, your life is going to be smooth, walk away. (laughs) It's got no no basis in reality. It's it's, it's a kind of a hangover, what is called the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be rich. You know, if you do everything right, he's going to, he's going to double your portfolio, right? If you want to know what the way of Jesus looks like, maybe look to the cross and see how smoothly things went for Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, is one in whom the father was pretty well pleased. And the problem in our lives is we want to move from Genesis to the new heavens, the new earth right away. But God operates in the messiness of history over long periods of time. And I think part of our, our challenge in our world today is that we just don't realize just how common Suffering is in the, in, in, in the human life. Now, I, I mean, these are geeky things that I like to do. But one of the things I like to do is I love to read diaries of people who lived a long time ago. And there's this one diary that I read of a guy named David Epp. And David Epp was a Mennonite pastor in Russia in the early 1800s. So he's a pastor in Russia in a Mennonite community in Russia, and um, he keeps a journal, he, or he keeps a diary. And I was reading through it the other day, and I was, I was just struck by this. And this is just in the first few pages. This is 1837. January, 1837. I preached a funeral message at such and such place for the death of this person who was three years old. Seven months, nine days old. February 1st, just a couple weeks later, I preached a funeral sermon at the home of this person's place. Um, The child died at the age of 10 weeks. A few weeks later, I preached a funeral sermon of little daughter Helena, Helena Teeson, at Jacob Teeson's residence. She died on March 10th at five in the morning. She was just a young girl. Just three days later, I preached a funeral sermon on 1 Corinthians. This person reached 47 years old. Five days later, I preached a funeral sermon at the home of Abraham Claussen. He died at the age of 67. He had 12 children. Eight died. I preached a funeral sermon on 1 Corinthians for the baby H Unger in the home of the widow, Mrs. Abram Unger. She was 30 weeks old. Preach a funeral servant for someone who is 44 years old, nine weeks in one day. Every week he's writing this down, every week. And this, (laughs) And no, you don't read any of us. You're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to walk away from God. I'm going to, you know, this makes no sense. How could uh, he recognizes, but and finds comfort in the presence of Jesus in a life that is just full of suffering. And that's, I mean, part of the things, part of the reasons why I, I love studying history is that it gives me perspective. Now, I'm not saying I wish suffering on anyone. I hate suffering. Nobody wants suffering. And and nowhere in the Bible does it say we should embrace, like, look for suffering. But it does say suffering is real. But it is the very place where we meet Jesus. It is the very place where Jesus, who understands suffering, will encounter us and will walk with us. And transform our suffering into something else. The other thing is that the Bible tells us that yes, we suffer, but we suffer with hope. Because we know that suffering doesn't have the final word. And I've said this before, but I've done I've done hundreds of funerals at CA Church. For some reason I do all the funerals. (laughs) I actually really love doing funerals. I'd much rather do a funeral than a wedding. I like weddings, right? I enjoyed your daughter's wedding. <laughs> don't, don't tell her I say, I enjoy, the, the, I enjoy weddings. They are certainly more fun, um, but there's something at a, at a funeral, you're on the edge of mystery. And there's a world of difference doing a funeral for someone who um, has passed away, but who's in hope, and when there's no hope, when people are just feeling just overwhelmed. It's a huge difference. And and so, I mean, I've, I've kind of lost track of my notes. I sound like Pastor Mark. I've lost track of my notes. Um, but I think this is this is really important. Um, hope is absolutely key. And from, from a Christian perspective, there's nothing that we will face that we'll have to face alone. Because we have the promise of one who will never leave us and forsake us. And the other thing is when you suffer with hope, Even though it's difficult, when you come through it, you're changed. Now, I've been doing lots of talking, so I'm going to give you guys a chance to chat for just a moment. Now, the chat might be a little heavy. And so I just want to say right from the get-go, you don't have to participate in this if you don't want to, if it's too loaded. But one of the questions I have for you is, is this have you ever suffered and experienced something good coming out of it? That's it. Have you ever suffered in something and then on the other end, something good came out of it? And if you're okay, briefly, maybe just share it around the table. Is that okay? Okay, so I'm just going to give you just a few minutes. I know not everybody's going to get a chance to speak, but if you want to share just something, and it doesn't have to be a, a heavy, it could be, you know, I, you know, I stubbed my toe and it turned out I fell over and I found a dollar on the floor. I mean, it could be something like that. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'll just give you a couple minutes to do that. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it, it was, it was quite good just, um, with my cyber friends, just hear, hearing lots of stories Uh, that people have gone through and I and I maybe I didn't phrase the question right and I think uh, you know Nadia you pointed it out quite well it's it's not so much that you know suffering that good good came out of it because sometimes good comes out of it but maybe we're changed we're changed in a positive way through our experiences even though you know you never want to go through it again but on the other side of it it's like well now that I'm on the other side or I've kind of gone through this I notice that there has been a transformation that I probably wouldn't have gone through if I hadn't had that experience. Um, I think one of our one of the things um, that we need to re- recognize is that um is that in in the Christian faith suffering is not something that is hidden is not something that is denied if you read scripture it's full of suffering i mean last year we walked through first peter together and um the whole theme of first peter is about the transformation that we get that we go through because of suffering and so it's a it's a it's a huge mis- misconception to look at christianity as if it is kind of pie in the sky kind of do this optimistic looking, always looking on the bright side of life kind of thing that's not it at all it's 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 a faith that understands suffering in it and um and takes suffering very very seriously and and there's a mystery to it because there's an intersection between suffering and and the person of Jesus and his presence and at the center of our of our faith is a cross which is a, a symbol of the deepest suffering and so that's why i th- i think it 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 offers us it offers us something that um that I don't think any any other faith can offer us. And you know, I, I think you know our world trains us. Our world trains us to go through life with our heads down. Uh, our world trains us to to um, you know to 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 medicate or to deny or to remove suffering from our. From our from our, our views, and I, I'm I'm fine with medication. I'm very thankful for medication, <laughs> very much so. But um, our world, it um, it suspends pain, but doesn't enter into its mystery. And I think for, for our challenge as Christians is simply to what Dallas Willard says: um, to really believe what we say we believe. And Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and the life." And I, and I love and I, and you know it's, it's it's mandatory for me to quote Lord of the Rings. Um, I had about three 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 references. I'm just going to give you one. Um, uh, there's this great scene at the very end of Lord of the Rings, where you have this fella, this hobbit named Samwise Gamgee, and Samwise is um, he wakes up and he looks out and he sees that. Um, that his old friend, Gandalf, the wizard, who he thought had died in the uh, mines of Moria, was not dead, but was alive. And so Sam cries out, he says, I thought you were dead. And Gandalf says, oh, well, I thought I was dead myself. And then Sam asks this question, it's a great question. He says, oh, is everything sad going to come untrue? is everything sad going to come untrue? And I think that's the point, is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything sad is going to come untrue. That the worst we experience will not be the last thing. Doesn't mean we don't have questions, but it does mean that we walk in the presence of God Through the darkest valley, you notice in the Psalm 23, and even though I walk around the darkest valley, no, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this is the angle I think we need to take when it comes to suffering. I could have laid out a bunch of philosophical um, arguments, but I think this picture of, of suffering and hope, there's something so rich in this, and there's something that Christianity offers that is so rich and so powerful, so transformative. Is it any wonder that eight, over you know 80% of the hospitals in this world that exist to alleviate suffering were established by Christians? And it's because this 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 sense of, of being present to people who are suffering, being the hands and feet of Jesus. I've shared this with you uh last uh, semester, but just one of the things that drove the Roman pagans crazy is that during pandemics, during epidemics, uh, the Christians wouldn't run; they wouldn't leave town. They stayed in the city and they cared for the for the sick, not just for Christians, but for for all people there. And it was after those that's where you know the the, the, the church continued to grow. It actually grew remarkably after each particular plague. And it's because there is a theology of suffering. That runs very very deep within the christian faith that i think makes sense and uh, it makes sense there's still mystery but it offers us a way through better than anything else so that's what i want to lay before you tonight and now i'm going to open it up because i'm sure you still got lots of questions but uh i I think that's that's a helpful way to uh to approach this topic so i'm going to stop the recording here Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.